Welcome, guys, back to the Grateful Living Podcast. Today, I'm thankful to have Peter Bell with me. Peter is currently the chairman of Amity Ventures, a people-focused venture capital firm that supports founders of technology companies in building category-defining businesses. Based in San Francisco, the partners at Amity have invested in over 50 companies across all stages of company growth throughout their years in business together. Prior to Amity, Peter spent 12 years at Highland Capital Partners, a $3 billion venture capital firm, as a general partner, managing general partner, and then senior advisor. Peter, thank you so much for joining us. Well, Arnab, thank you for having me. Looking forward to chatting with you. Of course. Thankful to have you on. So, you know, for people that don't know you as well, can you kind of set the scene for us of, you know, where you grew up, your family situation? Uh, what type of kid you were, things like that? Yep, sure. I grew up um, uh, sort of half my life in Long Island. And then when I was 10, moved to uh, to Minnesota. <clears throat> so my my parents um, are sort of uh, New York and Long Islanders, um, but they uh, became Midwesterners. So um, I, I have close ties to both places and um, uh, had a pretty, I'd call it um, a very... I'll call it fortunate childhood. My parents were middle class. My parents are still together. They're still alive. I have two brothers who are doing well. We had, I think, a close-knit family. Uh, I decided to leave Minnesota, go to school in Boston because uh, I had heard good things about BC. My grandmothers were in New York, um, so I could be closer to them. And uh, so I feel very fortunate. Uh, I didn't know much about BC at the time. This is back in 1982 when I was a freshman. But that turned out to be a very fortunate decision. And uh, uh, just quickly on my sort of what I've done. So I went to BC and met um, my girlfriend from BC, um, who we dated for 12 years and then got married. Uh, she's class of 87. I was class of 86. But uh, joined a company out of joined a big accounting firm out of BC, Pricewaterhouse. Uh, only lasted for two months. It wasn't for me. It's a very good firm, but I was. It was not the right fit for me. I joined a startup in Natick, Massachusetts, called EMC, and uh, that was growing rapidly. And three months later, after I joined, they asked me to move out to San Francisco, which I did. I had never really been to California. I said goodbye to my girlfriend, who was a senior living in the mods at BC, and uh, moved to California. Spent uh, about five years out there. Came back to Boston to go to business school at Harvard and then uh, went back to EMC. And then a few years later, I got involved in sort of the startup world and started a company that I took public and uh, eventually sold that. And then uh, I was teaching at BC. I taught at BC for about eight years, um, undergrads, and I taught at MIT Sloan School for about five years. And uh, and that's when I started getting involved in venture capital and I joined Highland, as, as you mentioned. And so I half my life has been sort of an operator, entrepreneur, my professional life, and half as an investor. And uh, they both are happy to chat about all those experiences. But um, I feel very fortunate to have had a, a great career, uh, you know, working with entrepreneurs. Yeah, no, that's awesome. Uh, so you kind of talked about it, uh, you know, heading to BC and that your major was accounting. Um I guess I'm curious about, um, you know, your relationship with business. Is that something you knew like in high school that you might 
you know, you always wanted to be in business or eventually go into entrepreneurship or is that something that developed at BC? Um, can you talk about that? Um, I didn't really know. Um, I think, um, you know, like I mentioned, I had a pretty traditional family going to BC was, um, you know, like it is today it, for my family, it was a stretch financially. So I really felt, um, you know, I did, I was a, I think a good student in high school. Um, I was a better student at BC. I think I felt this sense of, oh my goodness, um, I need to do well here. My parents are sacrificing a lot for me to go here. So I, I actually studied a, a lot. My kids bust my chops about it because <laughs> I think I studied a lot more today. Um, I used to go to BAPST, you know, the library uh, yeah. that, you know, on campus, I'd go Sunday to Thursday, I'd go seven to one and no matter, I mean, every, uh, and that's where I studied up yeah. in the catalog, like upstairs, there's these little desks on the second floor in BAPST. Um, so I felt like, Hey, I need to do well because my parents, you know, they didn't, they, there was no pressure, but I just, I felt pressure. So, um, but, um, yeah, so I didn't know a lot about business. Um, you know, fortunately, you know, I think of the, you know, you think of like the big decisions you make in life or that become looking back, you know, for me, um, picking BC turned out to be a very important decision for me. I, I think of the underpinnings of my life are, you know, my family, um, my, my friends, my work and BC. Um, they're all important. Um, but I remember getting to BC and um, I, my parents, um, they put me on a one-way flight from Minneapolis. Uh, so they weren't able to come with me. And at this, at the time I went, Arnav, you, you didn't do, now they do the, uh, you know, they do the orientation in the summer. Yeah. They did that right before school started. So it was right around after Labor Day. So I remember my parents had someone they knew pick me up at Logan and they literally just dropped me off um, at uh, what, was Robert Center, which is now kind of where the Conti is. It's really where the Merker chemistry building is. Yeah. But that was the basketball arena. And that's where you sort of signed in. And then I, you know, I was nervous like every other freshman. These nice folks dropped me off. And I went into this, you know, this basketball arena. Um, and Father Monin was giving a sort of welcome, you know, convocation. And uh, I remember he said, look left. He was the president of BC at the time. Look left and look right. These will be your friends for life. And I'm like, I'm thinking, <laughs> not a chance. There's, you know, 2,000 other people sitting there. Um, but turned out that was true, actually. Um, and uh, but I didn't know a lot about business. Um, but joining a, I guess, a startup for me, you learn, you're th sort of thrust into the business world. So I, I was able to learn a lot. Um, and uh, making the decision to go to EMC turned out. That company became super successful. It was a bootstrap company, and it was eventually acquired by Dell about five or six years ago for sixty-seven billion dollars, which was at the time the largest tech acquisition ever. Um, the Activision deal has been is bigger, but it was still a giant, uh, a giant acquisition. So, um, just tremendous people there. So I learned that, uh, you know, learned a lot about business, and then had the good fortune to go to a, to grad school where you're sort of immersed with a lot of other like-minded people and great faculty and things like that. So some of those things, BC, you know, EMC business school helped me, I think set me up for a good foundation for my, my career. Yeah. You know, you talked about it in the intro, uh, but I think, you know, you ended up meeting your wife at BC. 
um you know for for younger people today um it's interesting because i think there's a variety of, of views on on personal life and um you know often you'll hear people in their 20s say they're not focused on it and they're really just focused on professional life you know as you look back at your journey with your wife i'm curious you know it sounds like there was long distance at points during the relationship um you know any advice for the you know 25 to 34 year olds or 22 to 34 year olds on you know uh on love and and finding yeah. the one yeah that's a, <laughs> a great question probably the most i mean i remember what one year father Leahy, who's the president of bc as you know or not asked me um the night before commencement there's uh the honor students have some type of dinner or something and he asked me to speak to the families that the honors graduates and their parents this is about 10 years ago and he said you know i said what, what what should i speak about and he said oh well i said what did the last year oh someone he spoke about biology and something i was like oh my oh wow okay and i'm thinking i'm thinking of my parents sitting there you know 20 i'm like they wouldn't you know that would be something that they probably wouldn't really fully understand or appreciate if I talked about venture capital or something like that because yeah. you have all different majors and stuff so I talked about uh picking your life partner <laughs> and which is so it kind of related to your question um the, and because you, you think a lot about what what job am I going to take or what grad school am I going to go to or what am I going to major in and those are all important decisions but I think picking your life partner is probably like dramatically more important um and uh you know very binary um so so i'd say i got lucky um but you know like to your question so we you know we met at bc we dated and then i, I got transferred to california and um and then my wife went to law school in washington dc so we did long distance um at the time twa which was an airline it doesn't exist anymore but for the first couple years, they had a deal remember, from the East Coast, either Boston or Washington to the West Coast. And as long as you did a red eye, like Friday, it was 154 round trip. So we did that a lot, my wife and I. Yeah. But then we went through a period where we sort of, you know, she got busy on her life and I was busy with my life. And, you know, just too much um, to maintain the long distance. And we kind of felt like we didn't talk for about... Uh, 10 months and in 1989 in october there was an earthquake the loma prieta quake in san francisco and at the time um it looked if you just watch cnn like san francisco was falling off the map there was fires it looked i mean it was definitely right. bad yeah but the city i mean it wasn't as bad as it looked on tv and this is before cell phones and texting and so it was like landlines and i guess my girlfriend had, or my ex-girlfriend at this point was calling me a lot to see if I was okay, but the phones weren't working in San Francisco. So I, so then somehow she called me, she's like, I'm in LA at a wedding. I'm coming up to see you. So she came up to make sure I was okay. I was fine. This is like 10 days later. Yeah. And we got, that's how we got back together. So it was sort of this, uh, the earthquake, uh, in 1989. But, uh, so my, I, you know, I do think and I'm not one to sort of say, you know, because it worked for me, it, it should work for everyone. But I do think if you get that right, your life partner, whatever that can mean to you, I'll call it your soulmate for the journey. A lot like 
that's foundational. And I can't imagine like going at it alone. Um, and, uh, <coughs> excuse me. So I would say I got very lucky. Um, and it, and it's really been a journey, um, <coughs> and a very good one. And, uh, we've been blessed. We're still in good health and our kids are in good health. So, um, and it's been, a, it's been fun. Um, I will share, um, I, you know, um, I'm Catholic. So when you get married, at least at the time in the Catholic church, um, you do this thing called pre-cana, which is like you're planning for your, your wedding and you go to this like a weekend. We went, we did it in Waltham. Yeah. We were living in Weston at the time. So we did it in Waltham, which is a suburb of Boston. And you have to sort of go with this group. They, they sign like, uh, you know, the, the, the guys go out to, with a few small group and, the, and then you talk and then you come back to the group and you have to just type what, what is most attractive? Why are you picking this person to be? And you get in front of the whole group then and you discuss, you, you say it. Um, and, uh, so um, what are the attributes about this person of why you want to marry them and spend your life? To? And I said, my, uh, for my wife, Mary Lee, I said, uh, um, low maintenance, easy to hang with and good looking. <laughs> so, I mean, that's, I don't know, my wife would probably laugh, but she would remember that. But that's, you know, so, you know, that's, and we, yeah, we, we, we've been together, you know, since 85, you know, for, for that one year I told you about what part, but we've been basically together for, I guess, 30, you know, 37 minus one uh, year. So a long time. Yeah. Oh, that's awesome. So you talked about it in the intro that, you know, you started out at, PwC and two months later made a change. You know, that's that's not an easy decision at 22. You know, I'm sure a lot of friends of yours said, oh, that's going to look bad on your resume. You know, just stick it out for a year. Um, at that point, I guess it or is was that your mentality? Like it was was that being said? Like, did I guess well, having that confidence to make that decision, um, was that difficult for you? Um, it, you know, part of it, it was a long time ago, but there are things related to your question that I remember vividly. Um, I remember a few things. I remember vividly um, of my father telling me, um, and my father, like most fathers, they want you to have, you know, be happy, have a successful life. So he had my best interest at heart is, and he was, I worked at a good, he had heard of the firm Price Waterhouse. So this is a good firm and it is a good firm. It's a very good firm. And he, I remember him saying, this is a terrible decision. A terror, like you're at a, like, we're, you're going to go to where EMC, I've never heard of it. What do they do? I'm like, well, they sell memory boards. Oh, uh, he's like, they sell memory boards. What, what is a memory board? Why would you ever leave? this big successful company for a startup. Um, so he thought it was crazy. And the partner at Price Waterhouse, who um, I and love and admire, and he's a class of, he's a BC alum, uh, Jack, who's retired. Um, I remember resigning to Jack and he telling me, you get like, you know, you're in a great firm and just obviously all, you know, and it is a great firm, he was a partner. And they gave me a shot. So him telling me you're going to be in sales and that's, that's not really a profession. And I said, well, Jack, my father's in sales and I, you know, I think I can make a living. 
Um, yeah, and all the people telling you. But what was the few things that happened was that EMC um, was growing, and there was three or four, I'll call them kids, who were one year ahead of me at BC that were there. So they were from the class of 85. I was class of 86. And they were like loving it. And they were moving into new offices, opening different cities around the country and around the world. Uh, my friend Andy O'Brien was in New York. My friend Randy was in Australia. You know, they were like doing these great things. So that made it easier and felt less risky. And my girlfriend, um, who's now my wife, was super supportive of just, you know, if you think this is right. Um, and then finally, <laughs> to go on this last, I was taking the CPA exam. This is in November of 1986 at the Armory, which is where the BU Hockey Arena is now. It was an armory. It was this big old building. And there was like a thousand people as a three-day exam. Yeah. And I'm there the first day, Wednesday, for the three. I'm taking the exam because I have you have to take the exam within the first year to, you know, to sort of get promoted at the firm. And about a half hour, I had the offer from EMC. And about half hour into the exam, I went to the restroom. I had my pencil and my calculator at the desk. And I'm th- and I'm just going, you know, I I'm going to go to EMC. I just I left the armory. I hopped on the T right there uh, by BU and showed up on my girlfriend's mod. She's like, what are you doing here? I said, I'm, I'm quitting. Uh, let's go away for the weekend. And we went up to New Hampshire, I remember. But so it just it became it, it didn't it felt like the right decision. Enough people were at EMC that I trusted. And and I remember when I went for the interview, it was late in the day, the final interview. And they were throwing the football around like the, the you know, the sales area. And I'm like, and they really seem to be loving their job. All these people who are only a year older than me. I'm like, wow, that's pretty cool. You can sort of love your job, have fun and still, you know, you know, earn some money and things like that. So it turned out to be a good decision, but it, uh, I guess looking back, there was some risk there, but it didn't feel like it. Yeah. Uh, so at EMC, you know, you were involved in inside sales and, um, you know, sales, marketing, and operations, I guess, you know, for young people in their career, are there, are there lessons that you took from your time there that you think is applicable or how how do you look back on, on that time period, you know, 86 to 91? Yeah. Well, and a lot of times related to your question, um, I don't know if like lessons or you, you don't realize they're le- that you don't know it at the time. So I'm going to say some things that I look back that turn out to be lessons or, um, but I didn't know it at the time. But my takeaways are find an industry, you know, if you're going to be in business, that's like a huge industry. So we were at EMC, we were at the forefront from in terms of the computing, like corporate computing was really emerging as becoming a key building block for a business. So we were in the, we were providing the plumbing for what turned out to be a huge market. So that was a takeaway. Second, um, winning is more fun than losing, whether that's in sports or business. So like this company was growing, like doubling, even though it was small and was privately held, I was like employee 81. It was doubling every year. So something good, you know, it must be happening. Um, third is work with people. Um, I have a friend who's the CEO of 
Motorola, Greg Brown, and he was a guest at my class a couple of times at BC. And he always said the same, I, and I'll never forget, I, and I still, we're still close. He was uh, at my tailgate for a, few, a football game a few weeks ago, but he said, there, you, know, you know, there's energy givers and energy takers, and most people are energy takers. And he always talked about being an energy giver. And what ha- at EMC, it felt like everyone was an energy giver. Like there was so much positive energy. Um, so big industry, um, you know, I, a, a company that's growing, doubling every year with people who I felt like gave me energy. Um, so I, I always think that like that applies as much today as it did, you know, 30 years ago. Um, but, uh, and because the company was growing dramatically, I got a chance to like move out to San Francisco, grow that kind of business out there as Silicon Valley was beginning to explode. Then I got to work, you know, in a manufacturing plant, like learning about how the business really operates. Uh, EMC sent me to business school. They So they actually paid for me to go to business school, even though I took a two-year leave. I mean, they were just, they cared a lot. They, they took great care of me. Um, and uh, and then when I got back to the company after business school, it'll I could flir- continue to flourish in the business. So they really treated me extremely well and uh you know forever grateful to the to the people at at emc and how they supported me in early part of my career yeah um you know i'm i'm curious just from a mindset perspective if you can go back like were you thinking about like oh I, i need this promotion or i need this salary increase or like or was it more organic and things were just ha- like, what was your mindset? I mean, even it, like, let's take business school, like, you know, where you think like, did you have the mindset? Oh, I'm going to work here five years, then go to business school. Or did all of these kind of things happen more organically? No, at the time I did not think I want to go to business school. What happened is, um, you know, I had, uh, a good friend of mine was um, two years ahead of me at BC and he was at business school. And um, for the, uh, and he, he, when he got to business school, this is in 90, he was in, I guess he was class in 91 at HBS. So this is probably, you know, fall of 89. He called me and said, Hey, you got it. You should, you should go to business school. And I was like, I, I'm not going to go to business school. And he kept telling me how great, you know, the next couple of years, how great it was and the people he met. So, um, I decided I would apply. Uh, I'm not a good test taker, standardized test. So at the time, uh, Harvard HBS was the only top business school that did not accept the GMAT. It, they, you did not have to take the GMAT. So um, I decided, well, maybe I'll apply to business school. I'll apply to a few. So I'm sitting for the, I fly back to Boston to visit my girlfriend and go to a football game. And the, the, the test is uh, in Carney Hall at BC in the morning on a Saturday. Now my girlfriend and all my friends are tailgating. You know, we're a couple, we're like three or four years out of BC. And I'm sitting similar to my accounting, you know, my uh, CPA, I'm sitting for the GMAT. And about an hour into it, I'm like, eh, I want to go tailgate. So I'm not going to take the GMAT. I'm going to only apply to Harvard because they don't take the GMAT and we'll see. So fast forward, I my roommate calls me. I'm, I'm in Seattle on business. My roommate in San Francisco calls me. He goes, you got a package from Harvard. I said, open it up. He says, hey, you, you got into Harvard. So I remember calling my father, the mother, 
And um, I said, I, yeah, I got into Harvard, uh, um, but I'm not going to go. Um, my job's great. I love San Francisco. I love my job. I'm doing well. I'm you know, making good money. Um, this company's phenomenal. And my father said, he said, you know, I don't know. I've never met anyone who went to Harvard Business School, but I think you kind of, <laughs> he used some choice words, but basically just go. Like, you're kind <laughs> of an idiot. Yeah. So uh, fortunately, I listened to my father and uh, I did go. And um, so I, I to, so I really did not have this design on, hey, I want to go, um, you know, to, to business school and I want to, I, I didn't really know. But I guess the lesson there for me looking back was, A, it was a great experience. I met phenomenal people um, and um, really got a lot out of it. And what it did give me that I didn't really appreciate at the time, it gave me a lot of optionality in life. And I think for me, what I started with was important is I want to live where I want to live. I want to work. I want to kind of choose the people I work with. Um, and I want to do stuff that's intellectually interesting. Um, so going to business school created all this options for me to do different things that ended up doing post business school. Um, and it was a, it was a phenomenal experience. Yeah. Um, after business school, you went back to EMC. I'm, I'm curious, you, you know, you mentioned it in the intro, but, um, you know, at the time of you joining EMC was 80 people, um, years, you know, decades later, they grew obviously to, you know, tens of thousands of people. Um, and then, you know, as you said, was acquired by Dell for 67 billion. As you look back on your time there, I mean, I'm not sure how much interaction you had with um, top management, maybe like, you know, Richard Egan or Roger Marino. Um, but from a leadership perspective or, you know, how did they, you know, obviously there's so many business people out there today and so many businesses. How how did they grow so much and 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 do so well is there something you look back on terms of their leadership that um you know you point to a great question um yeah and i worked i mean we were a small company so i i worked i, I worked for dick and roger i mean yeah. so everyone did i mean we all worked for dick and roger they're the e and m there was a third guy but he was very early in the company um but and Roger, Dick passed away. Um, he was the ambassador to Ireland. He passed away about, I'm losing track of time, maybe eight, 10 years ago. Um, Roger, still alive. Um, they are incredible. I, I Frankly, if, I think if, if EMC was a West Coast company, there'd be like, there's a few books, but there would be literally so many books written about the company because it was bootstrapped which is, I think it's the most successful bootstrap company in the, in, in American history. Um, they were, you know, they went, they were classmates at Northeastern. If you're on route nine, if you're on Huntington Avenue, there's different, there's the Egan building, there's the Marino, you'll see the buildings. Um, they were amazing entrepreneurs. So what I learned, um, uh, Dick put signs, he had, we had, this is old days. So we had off, like we actually had sales offices and in all the sales offices, there were signs that said, it's the product, stupid. Meaning, don't think you're that great. Luckily, you have a great product. And in the engineering offices, he had this sign that says, it's a Salesforce, stupid. 
but the point is you really need to have excellence in your product. You need products. I don't think about just look at your, your desktop, you know, Arnav, whatever products you have there, you know, whether it's your computer or software you use or things you use on the web, you have, to, these are products that delight you. And it's the same for the corporate, you know, customer. And then you have to have a way to engage with your customer, whether that's your sales, your customer satisfaction, your customer service. Um, you know, so that that was in spades. I'd say second is frugality. The company, because we're bootstrapped, had to operate like you had to share bedrooms when you traveled with other people, like just because like, frugal, like you, you you weren't allowed to travel during the day. Like you had like if you're on a flight for business, you had to fly at night, like maybe things that might be. But like it was just it was not only did it was a capital efficient, um, but it was. Uh, um, a, a mindset, um, and just the uh, and the company was highly. It was a metrics. It was all run on metrics. And I remember Dick would stand up. He'd have the quarterly meeting, and he would review every executive. The head of engineering would get on the stage. Dick would say, "This is what the goals were last quarter. This is what the goals are this quarter." And then you'd sort of clap and say, "Like, how well did this person do? Their team." And so everyone was measured, not just the sales force, like product quality, customer success. So um, and I and I, I've taken that to this day of like measuring everything, you know, in, in a business. Um, so they were like absolutely amazing entrepreneurs. And then to their credit, when they decided that uh, around 2000, uh, you know, it's time to even raise the, you know, to bring in the next you know, manager, or if you will, next leader, they hired a guy named Mike Rutgers. And the, the, I remember the market cap was around 100 million when Mike joined. And 10 years later, so sorry, this is 1990, 10 years later, in 2000, it was 200 billion. My, it was the number one stock of the decade of the 90s. Dell was number two. <clears throat> and Mike was, he didn't, he wasn't the founder. You know, he came, the company was founded in 79. So he came in 11 years later. But um, he operated like a founder, meaning how his how much he cared, his authenticity as a leader. Um, <coughs> and then Mike ran it for ten years. <coughs> Excuse me. And then <coughs> I'm gonna get some water. Yeah. Um, and then Joe Tucci took over, and um, for another ten years. So in 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 thirty years, there was only three CEOs: Dick. Egan, Mike Rutgers, and Joe Tucci. Um, and so the stability of leadership was absolutely tremendous and having the right leader for each, you know, tenure of the company. Um, so tons of lessons. EMC was one of the most well-managed uh, companies, you know, if you look at their the performance, you know, both in terms of a share, share price, but also just the operating metrics. But in addition, I think there's always luck, if you will, that plays, you know, we competed with, in 1990, IBM had like 76% of the storage market. So people bought, you know, the computer from IBM, and then they bought all the peripherals, the storage, the databases, the networking. But if you look back at the computing industry, what happened is Oracle became the dominant player in databases, Cisco in networking, EMC in storage, and many other companies spun out of that. So IBM controlled the computing market. Um, and... So that was sort of the IBM belief. The, the EMC, the key kind of big decision that was made was that storage information 
would be the center of corporate computing. That if you sort of, to use a bad analogy, if you sort of had a, a fire in your building and you could take the CPU, the computing power, or the disk drive, we had your data, you, you can only take one, you take the disk drive. Hmm. So the, the storage, and I know we don't, you, now today it's all in the cloud, but but yeah. essentially the concept that, that information was at the center of the enterprise, that was sort of the bet um, that, that EMC made. It turned out that was the right bet. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, late, later you started uh, storage networks. I'm, I'm curious, um, as you talk about, you know, EMC was a, you know, a great time in your life. Um, how was leaving the company and do you have any advice on knowing the right time to, to leave a company? Well, the, the way the company, so I was, uh, at the time, one of our biggest customers at EMC was in Colorado Springs, Colorado. And as you think, these companies would spend like $100 million a year on storage. So uh, we had to meet, go meet this customer. And I was going with Dick Egan, the CEO, the chairman at the time now. And he had a private jet. So we flew from Hanscom in Concord or Bedford, Mass, out to Colorado Springs for a day trip to meet our big customer. And the big customer was a telecommunications company. And they asked us in the meeting, they said, hey, to, to me and Dick, hey, Dick, could you give us storage and we'll connect it to our fiber optic network and deliver it as a service? And I remember getting back on the plane with Dick and Dick said, hey, we can't do that. That would be, we'd go, you know, that's going out of business strategy. We, we sell systems. Yeah. This is essentially renting storage this is what today you call it aws <laughs> yeah 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 but this was 1996 97 so i started thinking a lot about this idea um of sort of delivering compute as a service today you call it cloud computing i called it my first name was data tone like you pick up the phone you get dial tone you get data tone and this idea of delivering storage on demand and then a friend of mine who's an engineer named bill uh we had very strong relationships in Houston. Uh, and in the oil and gas business, you have to go out four times a year and bid for oil rights in the Gulf. And your capacity goes up 20 times for like a two week period to do the analysis um, and to figure out what you're gonna bid for that oil right. And we had a few folks in Houston say, hey, could you deliver a computing like for two weeks when we surge? So we called it storage surge. Yeah. And we got two customers to give us a purchase order, even though we didn't have a product. And we said, we basically said to our spouses, me and Bill, hey, we, we, we actually, Bill and I met, we had our wives come out uh, and we kind of said, we think we're going to go do this. And we said, we'll do it for a year. If it doesn't work, we'll go back and get real jobs. And then we went to venture capital firms and angel investors and we're able to sort of cobble up $10 million to go start the company. Um, but that's sort of the, that was the genesis of the idea. Yeah. Um, obviously, you took this company public in in 2000. As you look back, is there something you would tell someone that's looking to take their company public? You know, any words of advice or wisdom? Um, wow. <laughs> um, <clears throat> yeah, well, I made a lot of mistakes um, looking back. Um, you know, the, the, I'll use the word stakeholder management. 
So when you're running a company, any company, whether it's a small startup or a public company, we became a, we, you gotta remember, we went from idea to public company in two years. Yeah. So <laughs> now it's harder today. You can't really do that. Um, it takes a long, it takes much longer, but um, what, where I was, I guess what I would tell someone if they were thinking about it is really get, understand your stakeholders, which are your employees, your partners, um, uh, obviously shareholders, or your board of directors. Um, you know, there's a lot of different folks who have different needs and wants. Um, and that for me as a first time public, com- I was, you know, I was, you know, 36 years old. Um, so I was, you know, I, I, I missed some big things and sort of understanding stakeholder management. Um, and so I'd say if you're going to go public, I'd say my is really make sure you're, you, you as a person and your company and the people surrounding your company are really ready. We were, we were not ready to go public. Um, we had a very successful IPO. Um, the markets changed, changed a lot. Um, in 2000 and, you know, you know, around 9-11, not only 9-11, but just the capital markets changed, the economy got tougher. Um, and the sentiment, much like we're seeing today, there are a lot of things, if you look at the public markets, sort of this, um, you know, growth versus profitability. You know, we were in a period when I started my company, it was all around growth and then it became all around earnings. And we're kind of seeing that today. Um, and, um, and so both in terms of, you know, kind of being ready to go public. And then once you're public, I was too worried. I mean, you really need, as a CEO, you need to have a very long horizon. Um, and probably because of some mistakes I made or some of my inexperiences, I probably, there's a lot of short-term pressure. You have a lot of uh, demands of activist investors, hedge fund managers, very demanding and very prescriptive of what they want you to do. But obviously they're trying to make you know, get a return on their stock price, which is fine, but you know, you're trying to build something for the long term. So I think we were we were in the right industry. I mean, we were we were AWS before AWS existed. That's what we did. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we were a little early, but it's always a fine line. Are you too early or too late? We were slightly early, but we had a very good balance sheet. So we ended up, you know, selling the company, um, which uh, I think you know was probably. In hindsight, I probably wouldn't have done that, but it was, it turned out to be fine. I had a young family, you know, I had, um, I only, you know, uh, yeah, at that time I had, you know, three kids under four. So it was, you know, uh, probably the right time from that perspective, but there was, there's a lot of lessons learned that are still applicable today. Yeah. I, I was going to ask that next, you know, I think your, um, first son was born in 98 and, you know, you're an entrepreneur and, um, you know, and suddenly in 2000, you're a public co- company CEO, you know, uh, balancing um, your professional life and your personal life. Were you able to do it during this sort of four or five year time period from 98 to 2003? Um, I probably, you know, I think it's always hard to get things at any point in time, perfect, you know, balance. Um, I think, uh, <laughs> reflecting back a bit, um, cause you know, I, I was, you know, had all, you know, I had, I, I will tell you a funny story. I won't mention names, but I had, um, 
someone very close to the company who was an investor. And we had this dinner down in New York and my family was there and, you know, our stock went, uh, our first trade was at $92. So the company was valued on at the end of the opening day as $9.2 billion. So introduced me to the group. He got up that I was the best entrepreneur he's ever worked with. And he backed blah, blah, hundreds of people. And I remember um, about five years and he held the stock. So it was way up, then way down. And then uh, on a reference, when I was interviewing at a, a firm, they called him and he told him I was the worst entrepreneur he's ever worked with. So I think I'm somewhere in between. <laughs> uh, same guy. Yeah. But um, so uh, I think one thing helped is that my uh, I always tell like my wife and kids didn't like love me more or less based on the share price. They basically, hey, you know, you're a husband. You know, you walk in the door, you're a husband and a father, <laughs> you know, regardless of how great or poor the company might be performing. Um, so that helps you keep grounded. <laughs> and, um, but um, it, I probably got the, some, I think it's real, I think it's very difficult to be a public company CEO and have, and be, you know, cause you know, there's quantity and quality time, but they're both related, right? If your kid has like a baseball game or a preschool parent teacher conference, and you're not there, even if you have the best intent, you're not there. So, uh, you know, so, but if you're a public company and you're, you know, your, your, your sales team needs you for a meeting in Germany, or you have to speak at an investor conference in Phoenix, you, you sort of have, you know, um, now today you can do a lot more remote and on things like Zoom and whatnot, which I think is great. But at the time, that, that's not how the world worked. And if you don't show up, like there's like all this. So uh, I probably got out of whack, but fortunately we had, a, uh, you know, um, we were able to, you know, because of my my wife and figure out and family, figure out how to make it work. But it definitely is 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 difficult. Yeah. Um, you talked about it, but in 2003, um, EDS acquired the company. Um, Again, any advice on on selling a company and and you know as you well, look back on it. that? Yeah, yeah. Well, good. Yeah, I've been through that. You know, at that time, and also being you know in, in involved as an investor last you know nineteen years or so. You know, through a number of different M and A. Um, you're selling a company, and every situation's different. Um, you know, and you're in a, in. Uh, I mean, even I've discussed it today with a few colleagues. Because the M and A market is is slow right now, um, you know, and there are companies that we're involved with that would you know be M and A candidates. So, um, I'd say you you really need to build your company to be independent, um, and in terms of you know kind of your, your your margin, your balance sheet, your quality of your team, but you need to be receptive to having discussions. So you're sort of you're hopefully never putting the for sale sign on, but you're um, but you're always chatting with co you know potential suitors um, because if you're a venture back company, you know you're eventually you're going to exit through an IPO or a acquisition, and majority are exit through acquisition. So um, that's kind of where your your board or different advisors are quite important. So I'd, I'd say back to something we chatted with that a little bit earlier, but really getting the 
that surround yourself with people who have done it before. Um, because for most CEOs or first-time CEOs or entrepreneurs, this is the first time, and it might be the only time you're going through it, but there are other people who have been through it. Um, so fortunately, we had a, we had some very good people involved in our company that, that helped through that process. Um, but I would say, um, looking back, I'm now reflecting on your question, and I see it a little bit now, you know, through this current economic climate that we're dealing with, is there? there's a lot of um, hope. Like, I hope things are going to get better. I hope the markets, you know, the markets change. But that's not really a business strategy. Um, so I, I, I do advise entrepreneurs to get, you know, surround yourself, whether it's the board or advisory board, whatever you might call it, with people who have your the company's best interest, but also have been through whether it's the M&A markets, whether it's the IPO markets, have been through this stuff before because um, it is it is you know it is very difficult for a first timer to go alone. Yeah. Um, you know, from there you started uh, your journey in academia um, at MIT and and Boston College. Um, I guess I'm I'm curious, you know, how was that change of pace? Obviously, a lot different. Um, and you know, it, do you recommend that for you know entrepreneurs that have just sold their company as well, as a nice okay, uh, couple things? So yeah. uh, I'm actually I, I have this. I, I wrote a case, so you can't really see it, but it's called Storage Networks Restarting a Public Company. It's a Harvard Business School case. So what happened is I called a friend, Joe Lasseter. Yeah. And Joe uh, was a professor at Harvard Business School. And I uh, told him, hey, Joe, um, I, th I think I need some help. Like, what am I going to do next? And Joe said, well, you could write a book. And I'm not a writer. So I'm like, he said, but it might be easier. Why don't, you, why don't, we, why don't we write a case together? So you could sort of tell the story and like, it was about, hey, how do you, you have a public company, the world's changed. How do you restart a public company? So I did that, which was super fun. And I got to go teach it. And I still teach it today at different schools. That was fun. Um, in addition, I went to Father Leahy at BC, president at the time, still the president of BC. Yeah. And um, I said, you know, I'd love to teach a class to undergrads because I had a great experience at BC, but I learned like marketing and I learned accounting and I learned human resources, but like, actually, like I never actually had a class or like, how does the whole thing come together? <laughs> like, like if you're like the CEO or, or an investor, like in the company and I want to teach, I want to teach it to sophomores before they pick their major and get all siloed. And I want to use Harvard business school cases. <laughs> and luckily father Leahy said, you know, go talk to the Dean. But that sounds great. <laughs> so um, me and my friend of John Clavin, who went to BC, and he was the guy at Harvard Business School, companies before me, we did it together. And we started this class in 2003 called Perspectives on Management. It's still taught today. My son's actually in the class. Um, I taught it until 2010. Then I moved to California. And then my friend Jerry Doyle uh, took over. And he still teaches it with John's. Been, so John's been teaching that for essentially 18 years or 19 years. But the class, what it did, and I always tell the students after, and I'm, 
friends with many of the students I've had over the years. I'm some very close friends. Um, the class was really about demystifying success because we had we'd have each week we'd have a guest who was typically a BC alum, different stages in their life, but doing good things. Some were not for profit, some were for profits, some different industries. But they were all just like everyone else. You know, they were they were they had a great experience at BC and they were doing things that impacted their business or their or the world uh, or the community in a way. And um, and that class was a an absolute blast. So um, and the philosophy we, we used, Arnav, is um, and you'll appreciate doing your podcast is um, we 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 had real we had other we we were both then employed in other stuff. So we we, we couldn't do this you know, where we were becoming, you know, researchers or anything. So we said, we're going to use the, use talk radio. In other words, we're going to give the kids a case, give them a framework, like what questions we want to chat. And then we're going to just chat in class. It said a lecture. There was no, there was, I mean, there was no, le- we didn't teach them like, like mem- memorize these four things and then take a test. So we would like have a discussion and, there, and in every case at, at Harvard business school, there's a protagonist, a situation. What does he, what should he or her do? You know, what should she do? What should he do? Um, or, you know, what questions would you ask if you were the protagonist? And that was this, it was the Socratic method and uh, it, it worked. Um, and it, I think um, I, I get a lot of great feedback from current students and students who had it 15 years ago. So, um, and similar at MIT, I went to a friend who was at MIT and teaching a class, uh, creating this class called technology and sa- technology sales and sales management. And it was sort of like, if you're the first salesperson or marketing person in a company, because as you know, many companies might be started with great engineers and focus on the product, which is super important, but then how do we actually sell this? So if you were the first salesperson or sales manager in a startup, what would you do? Um, and that was a, you know, those for graduate students, but um, both were great. And um, so I, I, I really enjoyed that. Um, and I and me- remember when I moved, I moved to Cal- back to California in 2010. And I remember leaving BC after my last class and I was in the quad there. And I was quite melancholy about like, well, I, I'm going to miss a lot of things about Boston. But this is where I'm going to miss teaching at BC the most. And it definitely was the thing I missed the most when I moved to California. Yeah. Uh, soon after, you know, you started uh, your your career in venture capital uh, in 2006 with Highland Capital Partners, uh, you'd end up spending uh, close to 12 years uh, with the firm. Uh, I guess, you know, how, how did you get involved in venture capital and uh, maybe yeah. what were some of the lessons uh, from the, those 12 years? Sure. Yeah. I was doing some angel investing on my own beginning in around 2002, enjoyed, you know, working with, you know, early stage entrepreneurs. So, uh, one of the partners at Highland was a BC alum a few years ahead of me. And, uh, I was the, at the time Highland was in Lexington and they said, Hey, uh, and I was going often from Cambridge at MIT to BC and they said, Hey, you could use our office and sort of hang out with us on the days or in between classes or, you know, just hang out and, you know, maybe you meet, you introduce us to some entrepreneurs, you know, or we introduce, you know, and we'll see how it goes. So it was sort of like, it was just, let's start like walk 
before we run. And I really ended up enjoying spending time there. And then eventually, you know, we're able to craft where I could still teach. And I started as like a venture partner and then uh, enjoyed it. And then I was doing my first deal where I was really committing to the entrepreneur. Um, hey, we're going to invest. I'm going to join your board. Then, so I was really a gut check. Like, am I going to, uh, if I'm committing more than just capital, I'm committing this entrepreneur to help build, you know, help as a partner to build their company. I just, I joined uh, full-time then and it, it was great. And then as the company, as the firm was expanding in the West Coast, I moved out to uh, our office was in Menlo Park. We moved it a few miles into downtown Palo Alto, which was great. And it was a great journey um, and met some great people. Um, and a uh, lo lot of just awesome entrepreneurs we, we backed at Highland and, uh, but stayed involved with BC and, and then actually met some, a young guy at BC that I hired at Highland, which is still, he's still my partner today at Amity. So the Highland experience was great. We were doing early stage. We had some consumer stuff and uh, we'll call you know, enterprise. I was sort of on the enterprise team. And then the founders of Highland retired and they asked me to run the firm. We were, we had offices in, in Asia and Europe. So it was a global firm and it, it was, it was, it, it was great. It was a great experience. And, uh, you know, I've, I really found that my passion was really just partnering with entrepreneurs um, as they build their company. And that's kind of what I've been doing, you know, the last almost two decades. Yeah. I'm, I'm curious, you know, um, especially now with you being the chair, chairman of Amity, um, you know, a lot of uh, business students want to be in venture capital as soon as they can. Um or private equity as soon as they can. I'm, I'm curious as to what your opinion is on that. You know, you experienced life as an entrepreneur um, and working in corporate life and then got into VC. Um, do you think it's a, it's a healthy mindset to, to be wanting it, you know, with very little business experience? I guess, what's your opinion on that? Yeah, I think, and it's a good question and one that I, I, I chat with a lot of, you know, kind of students or recent alums often um, and always talk about that question. And I think there's, there's no right answer. If you look at, if you looked at resumes of the top VCs, you know, it'd be in terms of what they majored in and, you know, kind of what was their operating experience or investment banking or consulting, it'd be all over the place. Um, and um, and we've hired and we just hired we just we hired just recently uh, someone who just graduated BC 2022 um, just started with us um, and some of my partners have very little operating experience and they're great VCs um, and then there's some VCs who are have a ton of operating or entrepreneurial experience um, and are great VCs so I think there's not one way to do it I think. What I think, if you if you get operating experience, I think the advantage there, because um, essentially VC is about a few things. It's about your network. Um, it's around about uh, your insights to a market, or around say technology, around where the market's going, around innovation, and then it's around judgment, um, like the what you know because our our business. Unlike say, if you were a hedge fund, if we, you know, we're making a bet and we're usually holding the company for say 10 years. So we're super long-term investors and it's a very illiquid asset. So it's, you know, when we decide to invest, it's a very 
it's a high conviction business. Um, and for the entrepreneur as well, it's a very, they're picking a partner for their journey. So um, I think by having operating experience, you are potentially more attractive to the entrepreneur because maybe you've sat in his or her shoes. Maybe not specifically exactly what they're doing, but you know their journey, so you have some credibility. But I would say that's not the only way to do it. Um, I think if I look at um, even like uh, folks in my firm who have really been VCs for the whole career, but they've seen a lot. So they see a lot of different companies. They have a lot of at-bats. So there's a lot of ways to become a great VC. Um, I would say it's, um, you know, like any business, you know, the, the, the top returns, I mean, it's basically skewed. So really getting in with the right firm um, and the, like, like often things sound, you know, they sound great until you get like, it's like any job, you know, you, it's, you know, it sounds like, Hey, it's great. What do you do? Well, you go out and meet entrepreneurs and you chat with them and then decide to put money in. And it's like really fun. And really, well, you actually, you know, you look at thousands of companies, you make very few decisions. We might make, you know, you know, probably six to eight investments a year. So we look at thousands of, of companies and there's a lot of work entailed in terms of the sourcing diligence. Um, and much like maybe sometimes in, in, like going back to like thinking about experiences in college where you, you know, you can always study more for a test. You can always do more work on the project. Um, similar with VC and we might work on something for months and then decide not to invest. Or we might join a company and be on the board for 10 years and it doesn't have the outcome we want. So there is, uh, the scorecard is extremely long. You know, it's essentially each fund's 10 years. So it, you really have to be in it for the long haul. And I would say for young people, if they go to into VC and don't like it, or they don't excel at it, the skills, the skills in operating a bit, if you work in a, in a company, those skills are very, you know, uh, transferable to VC, but the opposite is not true. So if you're a VC for 10 years and decide you want to make a change, you know, we don't really have, we're not like product experts per se. You're not really managing a team per se. You know, we, we have skills around investment decision-making, maybe sales, but we, we're not really you know, it's a, it's an industry that doesn't really translate to a lot of other roles. So I think, um, you know, I, I would typically advise people, if possible, go, you know, basically get some operating experience. I think it makes you, uh, you know, it, 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 it gives you a better chance to be a great VC. Um, and going back to the thing I said initially, like the network, like that's essentially like if you if I was good enough, you know, fortunate to back you, Arnav, in, in your next company, like what my value add is, hopefully I'm a good sounding board, but is like you want to get, hey, I, I need help hiring. Do you who who do you know that can help, you know, on engineering or sales? Or I'm trying to get my first customers or my business partner. Can you help with that? So the network is super important. Um, so I think, you know, those are all kind of things that I think translate well if you have had some operating experience before you've been a VC. Yeah. Uh, so as we talked about in 2018, uh, you left Highland Capital Partners. Uh, you started Amity Ventures. Uh, any any advice for someone starting their, their own venture capital firm 
uh, and maybe just talk about your story and how you guys got it going. Yeah, well, so CJ and Pat, my two partners, so um, they actually left Highland and kind of started doing what's called SPVs, which, which are basically, um, basically you set up, you know, you decide to invest in a company and you sort of go raise money for that. It's called a special purpose vehicle. So just to invest in that company. So they started doing that um, and, uh, you know, with some success. Um, I left a couple years later and then um, we had basically a, a lot of interest in saying, hey, would you guys kind of go and raise outside money um, because we had a good track record? Um, so I think if you're going to start, your, you know, if you're going to start, you know, your own fund or own firm, like having some type of track record is very important because investors are saying, well, you can't predict the future. It's like, well, do you guys have, you know, a background where you've delivered returns to uh, to limited partners? Um, secondly, we had going back to the network, we had very strong deal flow, you know, and and the best for I, for me, the best by far the best investment opportunities come from other entrepreneurs you've backed before, because entrepreneurs often talk to each other. So you know, the, you know, some CEO entrepreneur we've backed, they have a friend starting a company. That that is a a, a very um, highly thought of intro if someone connects us with a, a, a you know an entrepreneur that they that they know and they vouch for. So I think you know if you're going to start your own firm, having that track record, having the the pipeline of opportunities that set us up well. Um, and you know so far you know we're probably you know six years into it or what have you, and we still have a lot of work to do. But we've we've been fortunate to have some you know, incredible companies in our portfolio that are really performing well and, and building what we think of, we always think of like companies of consequence, meaning could they be, you know, a, a very important player in a, you know, multi-billion dollar market. And we're fortunate to have a bunch of those in our portfolio. Yeah. I am curious with the raising of the fund. I'm not sure how much of a, um, you know, work that was for you guys, but, um, in terms of managing relationships and, you know, I'm sure some of the LPs you have a, you know, personal friendship with, and now you're asking to maybe have a business relationship with that you may not have ever had. And maybe you're adding that. Um, is there a way to, to, to manage that well, or kind of create a way where it doesn't affect, you know, the friendship or, is yeah. it kind of yeah yeah well that's a great, great question it's it 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 and you know in in many people's life that you know, you'll have a business relation a personal relationship and then it's a business relationship and then there's sort of fine lines there you know fortunately for us our rlps um and there are some individuals but are uh are people who really have um they're either they're either super active in the asset class meaning they invest in a bunch of funds, so they're experienced as uh, as an, as limited partners, um, or they've been very successful entrepreneurs. Um, so they they know that this is not asking you know some friend down the street for a little bit of money, where if if that doesn't work out, like your friend's in a real precarious position and your relationship is at at risk. So we don't really have any of those. So. It, fortunately, um, 
and I, I feel for, we have some great, I have some very good friends involved in my fund and they're awesome. And they know that this is a very long-term business. Um, and they know we take our role. We, we communicate, I think quite well in terms of the formal communication, but um, they know we're doing that. We're, we're at it, doing our best, seeing some, uh, a bunch of great opportunities and hopefully applying the right judgment. So we feel very good. So it, it's easier now in my career. I would say to your question, uh, Arnav, is that um, earlier in my career, I had to, I've had to um, like fire friends. That that's that's very difficult, very, um, especially in an economic climate. This is twenty years back, twenty you know when the economy's not good. So actually. If you get laid off, it's actually not easy to get another job. And you know that the spouse, you know, the children, like that's really difficult. So um I, I have uh you know, and I have mixed views on that. Um and uh I remember I hired my my brother, I hired my brother and my wife saying, Yeah, are you sure? Like, like what if it doesn't work out? You know, just he, you know, it doesn't work out for fit or skill or whatever you know, will damage your relationship. Now, um, I said, well, my brother was a fighter pilot, flew F-16s for 10 years, you know, was number one in his class at Air Force Academy, blah, blah, blah. He's, you know, now, so I thought he was a superstar and I was right. And now he just got on to do incredible things uh, after. But but if you get that wrong, so I'd say if you're going to hire your friends or loved ones, um, make sure you sort of have as, as much intellectual an emotional candor going in, but you got to be right. <laughs> you mean like, don't be wrong. Cause when you're wrong, it, it, no matter what you say, it's painful. It's very, so I, I have had the, the, the line where it's sort of business personal and it, it becomes uh, difficult. Um, and if you're in a position of, you know, whether you're the CEO or you're the general partner in a fund, you do have a fiduciary to the company or the organization that actually takes precedent over the personal relationship with that person. So, you know, so that the fiduciary is actually the most important thing. If you're going to make, if you're going to be in a fiduciary situation. And uh, so I, I, and sometimes people don't fully appreciate that. So I think um, you need to have some, you know, your eyes open and the intellectual honesty around, you know, what, what comes first and the fiduciary needs to come first. Yeah. I'm, I'm curious, you know, keeping up with all of your portfolio companies, um, you know, while also hearing pitches from other people, while also, you know, doing other things, you know, how do you um, manage that aspect? How often do you check in? Are you available? And, you know, how do you kind of manage that aspect of what yeah. you do? Well, I'd say, yes, yeah, as, as a venture capitalist, you know, you essentially you're, you have your, you know, I guess your, your, your the things you do, you know, you have the companies you've invested in, your portfolio, you have new opportunities, and then you have your, you know, I'll call it your limited partners, you know, the the, the folks that have entrusted you with their capital. Um, and all three are, uh, uh, and then you have the firm, like the people in the firm, you, you know, like. Uh, we have some young people we're trying to develop. And so those are, I'd say those are the kind of the four major stakeholders and they're all important. And 
there it's not it's not a bucketed where you know one day a week you worry about you know limited partners one day you worry about your portfolio one day you worry about your new your pipeline and one day you worry about your team um they're all so i'd say um if i'd said like what comes first i'd probably say portfolio like i i would say to the, the ceos and entrepreneurs back like we're always available like because you don't know when they're going to need you for something big or small and um our companies operate you know now with you know the world we in they, they could be all over the place from a, a, a you know a time zone so we're always available um very similar to our, our team you know it, it's you don't really have our businesses force you you don't really have the, the ceos have a lot of fire drills we don't have really as many fire drills if you will but um but they're all important um and like deal pipeline like things happen extremely fast even in the current market like think so um if you introduce me to an entrepreneur on like someone you went to bc with or that you worked that you knew through your your your, your job and they you say hey meet my friend sue she's starting to come to this x y and z and i talk to sue tomorrow like if she's got a, a great company I, I can't say well so i'm really busy this month you know call me next month because that deal will be gone yeah and our business is fairly binary i mean if we miss it if we miss you know if we miss it it's likely we're never going to get another chance um so it, so we have to be and there's a lot of preparedness you know, around sectors we're excited about and entrepreneurs we're tracking, but there is still a fair amount of serendipity that happens in our business or things that you haven't planned for that happen um, from a deal perspective. So you, you, um, and that, that is, you know, the lifeblood of our business is that we have to have, we have to take care of our portfolio, but we always have to be finding the next company to invest in. Um, Cause people ask like, Oh, what, What's the worst deal you've ever done? That's like like when I go to say BC or something. What's the worst deal that you regret doing? And um, which is a fine question. And every venture campus has countless number of those. Yeah. But the things that keep us up at, at night is not that. It's the deal that we saw that we didn't do, or the deal that we should have seen that we didn't do that becomes the next whatever company and every vc has those two those, those are the ones it's you know what am i not seeing so we're always on the uh hopefully if you're a good vc you're super curious have a very open mind and you're hustling your tail off to meet the right entrepreneurs yeah um you know especially given that you've done both entrepreneurship and now venture capital life I'm curious, are there traits, um, you know, if there's a, a student out there in high school or college thinking about entrepreneurship, is there a trait you would tell them that, you know, most entrepreneurs need to have, or is there a way to kind of prepare for this type of lifestyle and um, that, you know, maybe you would recommend them trying to get experience in? Yeah. Um, I love that question. At, at first, I'd say if so, whether it's someone's in high school or college or at whatever stage in life, um, I would say that um, and if you even if you look at 
great entrepreneurs, whatever ones you hold in high regard. That could be someone who owns a business in your neighborhood, you know, or it could be someone who's, you know, running, you know, it could be Elon Musk, whatever, whoever you think is a, someone you admire as an entrepreneur for whatever reason. And if you look, if you study like 10 of them, the backgrounds are so varied. So there's like, it's not like, oh, you need to do this and go to this school and study this, and then you'll be a great entrepreneur. Like, no, you can be, that's why it's a to me, I feel so fortunate because entrepreneurs come from so many walks of life and so many experiences. Um, and I, and I don't have, there are, there is data on this. I don't know how some of this data is skewed to what you, someone wants the answer to be, but I do think entrepreneurs general, like if you said to most people, they, do you want to like, kind of like people always say, oh, it's risky to be an entrepreneur. And I guess I don't think it, I think it's act risky. Like to me, like for me personally, like going to work at a big company, some huge company. Where I'm in some some role where I'm it's like a middle manager, and in a quarter, if they have a bad quarter, I get laid off. Like to me, that's risky. So I actually, and I think most entrepreneurs feel the same way. They don't feel like it's they know it's risky. They know there's risk that the business might not work, but they don't worry about the risk every day. That's not what drives them. What drive? So I think the, if I look at sort of what commonalities are, is around authenticity. Like, why are you the entrepreneur on this mission? And what is it about you, who you are, your background? Um, what's your sort of what I'll call unfair advantage, your insight to the problem you're trying to solve? Because and how long are you willing like, to dedicate? Because it takes the data would say in a venture-backed company, it's about 10 years to exit. So let's just say it's 10, maybe it's eight, maybe it's 12, but it takes a, a long time, you know, and then sort of like, so what is your authenticity? Are you really prepared to go after this for the long haul? And you could be a solo entrepreneur, but that's even more prone to failure. Like who have you gotten on the journey with you? It's sort of like I said to, a, I met a solo entrepreneur yesterday, or Friday, and I said, you know, like I said, hey, have you had, have you like hiked Kilimanjaro in your life? And he said, no. I said, if you did it, would you go alone? He said, of course not. I said, of course not, you wouldn't. Because it's really hard to do it alone. It's even hard to do it with someone who's done it before. Yeah. But like, Sam, we're like, uh, so if you're going to start a company, like who are you doing it with and why them? And, uh, you know, so I think, you know, I think if I look at the entrepreneurs that I've been fortunate back, like they have that authenticity, they have the clarity of purpose, they surround themselves with a team that could be one person, you know, for their journey. Um, and that if they're right, it, 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 if they're going to pursue venture capital, like to help, you know, fuel the company, it's got to be a big, because if it's not a big outcome or big potential, they shouldn't raise venture capital because it doesn't make sense for both the entrepreneur who's giving up equity in their company and it's not worth it for the entrepreneur. So those are the things I look for. Um, and, you know, and I, I've backed, you know, I backed, I've backed 19 year olds and I've backed 65 year olds. So there's not like one age, but if you do, if you look at like household name companies, and I always tell people, look at what's on your desktop or in your pocket or, 
the stuff in the cloud you're using, they're started by relatively young people. So I would say um, experience is important, but it's often overrated. Relevance is very important, but experience um, and like going to work at, um, and I want to be careful not to pick on any big companies, but like if big companies, like on paper, venture capital shouldn't, entrepreneurship shouldn't exist because big companies have better talent, better balance sheets, better access to customers. So why does startups almost always win? They almost always win. And startups win because the clarity and the the ability to, to operate in what looks to be a small market initially, right? So the big company says, it's too small to put our best people on it. So either we'll put not our best people on it or we won't dedicate the proper resource to it, but it actually becomes a huge market. It's a classic innovator's dilemma, right? And you can study this, you know, if you study the history of Microsoft or you study Apple or you or look at Uber or look at HubSpot or look at Intel, you know, whatever companies, Facebook, Instagram, you, you know, you pick it, um, you know, there's a bigger company that should have done it, but didn't, or tried to do it, but kind of did it half-assed. Um, and even go back to my days at EMC, IBM should have done it, but they didn't. Yeah. Um, so, um, but, so I would say, because it takes a long time, like start early, and I would say, and also, as you, as you know, Arnab, it, the risks become different. So the risk when you're 25 or whatever age, if it doesn't work out, like you still could maybe forge a rent or maybe you moved home or you've got a roommate, you still survived. It's different if you're like my age, if I had you know, decided today I'm going to start a company and I hadn't maybe saved a nest egg. And if if, I, if it doesn't work out, my family, maybe my kids can't go to college or I can't make the mortgage payment or I can't save for, you know, my family, my wife and I or my spouse's retirement. So the it's a lot riskier. Um, and so I, I think um, I had a professor. When I was thinking about starting my own thing um, at uh, uh, at HBS, who's since passed away, but his name was Jeff Timmons. And. I, I, I would go to see him periodically and ask him, you know, when should, when am I ready? And he always said, you'll, you'll know when you have your nuggets. And what he meant when you had, you had enough in your pocket and I, not, not, not cash, but like enough insights into what you're going to go build, like insights to who you're going to go provide it, sell it to enough insights to who's going to hire to bring on your team initially to get you going uh, who, who might give you the capital? So like when you get your nuggets, you're ready. And, you know, there's no, that's not like a sort of black and white or, you know, ones and zero answer. But um, I do think I always tell like when it's, when some problems gnawing at you, like you can't stop thinking about there's a better way to do this or a better way to serve this market or this customer. Um, and hopefully you have someone to join you to go do it. Um, you know, I can't think of a, a better profession, uh, maybe being a professional athlete, um, but I don't know. I didn't have that, those skills um, to do that. But I think it's, you know, being an entrepreneur or being part of an entrepreneurial project or 
organization or business um, is like absolutely amazing. Yeah. You don't have to give us like all your secrets in this question, but I'm curious, you know, in terms of keeping up with markets, keeping up with the world, um, you know, keeping up with young people and trends, you know, are you like going on TikTok? Are you reading The Economist or like what what is your um, ability to kind of stay fresh and kind of keep your mind sharp on thinking about, you know, sectors you think are ripe for innovation or, you know, markets that could be disrupted or um, how do you kind of stay fresh there? Yeah, great question. Um, well, yes to your first two. Yes on TikTok and yes we're in the Economist. <laughs> um, and I, you know, you're not, you and I were chatting prior to to you know starting this. You know, and I said I talk to a lot of young people each week, and so I literally will talk to anyone that is introduced to me by someone I even if they're not starting a company. Like if you said, hey, I got a friend from BC or from high school that is a chemist. At um, you know, at MIT, you should meet you should meet her. Yeah. I'd say, great, introduce me to her. Even though I'm, we don't do things in chemistry. I would meet her. Yeah, because she's probably super smart and super interesting. So, and and maybe she wants to meet me because she wants to learn about venture capital. Great. So I'm I'm basically always talking to people who are doing interesting things, and they might want to talk to me because people like talking to VCs. But I'm learning <laughs> probably way more from them then they're learning from me so that so i do it by formal stuff of reading a ton of different um journals magazines trying to be stay right with what's happening in social media but then talking to tons of young people we started a, a fund called ssc venture partners which is, stands for storing soaring startup circle um we're not formally affiliated with bc but we only back bc students and alums and we're in our third fund, and all of our LPs are BC alums. And that's been a, and we have now a, a, a group on campus. We call it SSC Venture Studio. These are students that are basically, it's not a formal fund, but they they basically find opportunities for us to look at on campus. So we're always seeing interesting stuff. Um, and we do this with a for, few other schools as well. So we learn I learn a lot because I I not to be corny, I'm a people person, meaning I like enjoy. I actually enjoy chatting with people about stuff. My kids, when they were younger, used to like kind of joke, say, "Dad, what do you actually do? All you do is sit around chatting with people in like coffee shops, restaurants, bars, you know, about stuff. Like, like do you build anything? Do I go? No. Well, I'm actually that's my job is chatting with people. So, um, so I learned a ton. Um, and through that, I get some hopefully insights, but then I also get introduced to some, you know, fabulous, you know, absolutely fabulous uh, people. And a lot has been through, you know, like the the BC my my relationship with BC and the BC family community, whatever you want to call it, has been so rewarding for like so many reasons. Um, and I, you know. And I've met so many great entrepreneurs through that, uh, those relationships. And um, but so it's a bunch of different things, but you always got to be, you know, curious and you got to be a little bit uh, afraid of missing 
you know, afraid of missing something that's happening where you should see it. Um, and COVID has changed, you know, the, the world has changed. Some of it, I think, is probably good. You can do things like this, like you and I are meeting yeah. um, in ways that uh, you didn't have to get on a plane or drive three hours. And that, I think, is great. I, I do think it's um, for young people, um, you know, there is some magic that happens by being together in a company and organization, both in terms of like building a company, but just in terms of building a, a really enduring and strong network that I think is harder, not impossible, but harder to do or different. So we'll see, this will be interesting how things shape out, you know, shape, you know, the next two or three years as this sort of this hybrid world that we seem to be operating in now. Yeah. Um, you know, I'm curious, you know, obviously, you know, and I don't know if you even look at yourself this way, but obviously from a objective perspective, you've had a successful professional career. Um, you know, parenting three boys, um, you know, how has that been in terms of, you know, trying to guide them, but also letting them make their own mistakes or um, maybe if they're not interested in business, you know, letting them do that? Or how have you managed that aspect where they know, you know, who their father is and the success he's found and things like that? Um, how have you managed that relationship? Yep. That's a uh... Uh, very uh, good question. Um, and I feel very fortunate. Um, I have uh, one son who went to BC, who's now in the working world. I have a son who's a senior at UCLA. He's an artist. He's a painter. And I have a son who's a sophomore at BC. So, um, and they're all, I feel very fortunate. Um, and I'd say that's the, it's funny when I, you know, still to this day, when I call my mother, <laughs> The first, every time she picks up the phone, Peter, are, is everything okay? Like, Mom, okay? I'm just calling to say hi. But like the, the parenting thing never ends. Um, and it's always a fine line I found like of being, you, you want to jump in and like, if something's going wrong, you want to fix it and make it right. And sometimes you actually, you're in my case, my son, my, one of my son, that I'm, I'm not calling you to fix. I'm just telling you something. And I actually didn't ask your opinions. Like, I'm just telling you, yeah. like, don't, don't get involved. Yeah. Um, so, and I, so, um, but I think parenting is, um, it, it, I, you know, it's gotta be for me, the most rewarding thing, but also like the most difficult thing because there really is no exact playbook. And, um, it's very hard to predict, um, so that is the, and I feel fortunate because, you know, we've been, you know, my kids could go to college. We always had food on the table. We always had, you know, a nice place to live. And for so many families where it's a, you know, a single parent or dealing with financial or, I mean, just so many struggles. So I feel, and, and so it's, it's, um, but I, I feel very, very blessed, um, but very much excited for all my kids to figure out, you know, their path, whatever it may be, um, and try to, you know, uh, try to support them <laughs> in whatever, you know, whatever they want to do. And hopefully, you know, I, I think find 
you know, their purpose and, and find their people or to spend it with. Um, because, um, and I think maybe as you, as you get older, it, 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 you know, I'm sure the things you think about now are not are different maybe than you thought about when you were a, a sophomore at BC, <laughs> or, or, you know, and you know, you change and your perspective changes and it changes, you know, I mean, I had my 35th reunion a couple of years ago and it's like, and I remember I was back on campus <laughs> and I was reflect, I'm like, God, this would be like these students who like see me or meet me. This would be like when I was on campus and I met people who were at BC in the like mid 1940s. I'm like, oh my God. <laughs> like, yeah. that's a, like, so try to, you know, respect that I'm at a different stage and I have a different. So a lot of time when young people call and they said, what would you do? And I'm like, well, let's, that's a, a fine question, but actually is so irrelevant because it has nothing to do. It's try to get you the framework for what, for how you help you make your decision. But like people like call whatever the simple one, hey, what should I make? I'm, I'm deciding I major. Should I major in accounting or history? <laughs> I'm always like, well, what, what do you love? Well, I really enjoy like European history. Well, major in history then. <laughs> Yeah. So that, like, like my partner, CJ, who went to BC, he's class of 13. I hired him as a sophomore at BC. So I've been with CJ, you know, since two, for 11 years, 12, almost 12 years. I, I have no idea what he majored in at BC. I literally don't care. I, I, it, it's not important to me. Like, really. Now, it's important if you want to, like, you know, if you want to be a nurse you probably need to major nursing. If you're going to go to med school, at some point you got to study biology and chemistry. I, I got that. But for mo a lot of other stuff, it's, it's more important to excel. And I don't mean excel, like get a good GP. I mean, excel, like you actually enjoy it. <laughs> yeah. Like, that's what I mean. Excelling. Cause that's like, I really think in life, you know, and you probably, you know, you, I'm sure you, you see other podcasts or other you like people talk about like find you know find your passion and all that i think that's kind of not really how it works like you can say my passion is i i love golf great very hard to make a living in it or yeah. my passion is bird watching no if you become the most prolific bird watcher and build content around it you could probably make a living but it's probably pretty hard yeah right or if i enjoy sea kayaking maybe you could make a little it's hard so most of us have to like get a job like a, a, or some type of profession that pays the bills um so maybe it's not your passion but it's got to be something you kind of enjoy yeah um so i i think figuring out that early in life um and that's what i think most parents want for their kids. Um, you know, and I think I do worry, um, you know, for many young people, there's so much social media has, I think, intensified it. Like, like I, 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 like I know in high school for my kids, like whatever college you get into, like everyone knows like the exact you find out and then somehow the whole school finds out <laughs> or the one you don't get in or, you know, yeah. everyone knows everything essentially immediately. Yeah. Um, and it feels like, oh my God, I didn't get into my first choice or you're at college and you didn't get the, you know, you wanted to go for this firm and you didn't get it. Like, okay, it really doesn't matter. It feels like it's the end of the world. 
um, or the opposite, you get it. And then you get there, like, it's not actually, it, I know like everyone wants to work at this company or this firm, but it's not actually right for me. So figure out the fit you have in life, in your profession and in your relationships and figure out that early, as early as you can is really important, I think. Yeah. Well, Peter, we've, we've talked about quite a bit. Uh, was there something, you know, from, from your life experience, whether business or personal that you wanted to, uh, to leave us with? Um, well, I, I really enjoyed chatting with you. It made me think about a lot of stuff. Um, I, I would say, and I know you and I are sharing this because we both are BC alums and it's, so it, but it translates beyond BC, but I do think, um, the, you know, the world is obviously it's, it's big, um, you know, and sometimes daunting, but I think figuring out like who your people are that you're going to hang with both in, in terms of your, your day to day, like we talked about your, your spouse, your family, but then maybe, you know, we're, you know, it's, it's always like you know, maybe your, your mother or some other loved one, your grandmother, your aunt, your father talked about, you know, are you hanging out with the right people <laughs> when you were little, Do you, you know? And, um, I think for me, either I don't know if it was by my uh, by luck, and some of it was definitely luck, or by design, or by parenting my parents. But if I really looked like the the things that the thing that worked for me most is like I hung out with the right people, and I, I don't mean the mean for me. Like I I I have fortunate to have like really close friends who I've like been friends with for like, like so long. And I, I'd say, and that's a two way street as much. You have to like spend you, you, it, that does not just happen, you know, by, you know, you know, just by like, just luck, you have to invest in it, invest time in your relationships. And a lot of things, questions you asked me were about relationships. So I'd say that would be the parting thought is, is treat those relationships with loved ones, family, friends, treat them um, with the ultimate care and nurture them um, because they will be the, the, the really the, the thing that lasts for your journey. Yeah. Uh, that's an awesome piece of advice to leave us with. Uh, Peter, if people want to support you or Amity, what's the best way to do that? They can send me an email, Peter at amity.vc or on LinkedIn. I'm on Twitter, but not as active, but LinkedIn, I'm almost, like super easy to find or track down. So LinkedIn is probably the best way. Yeah. Awesome. Well, Peter, I just want to acknowledge you. Thank you for uh, coming on and, and sharing your, your story from, you know, corporate to entrepreneurship to venture capital. Uh, we really appreciate it. And a lot of lessons I think will help a lot of people uh, in, in the business field. Thanks Arnav. I've really enjoyed chatting with you and wish you, all the best and continued success. Thank you.